it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 470. We are pre-recording this. I have no idea when you're going to see it. We're recording it on December 31st. We're definitely doing time travel because I think this will be in 2017. I am your so host. So we're year. <laughs> we are off by a year. You've heard who our guest is. That's Bart Bouchatz. I'm your host, Allison Sheridan, and Bart is back with PBS Programming by Stealth, episode 27 of X. We're still hauling through, huh, Bart? We are. It's a bit tough going at the moment, but we, we're we about to make a course change into a whole new area, which I think will be easier sailing for a while. Uh, sort of, we, we're about to round a cape. I have to tell you, it makes me so happy to talk to Dorothy at the gym and have her go, I have no idea what he's done. I've been working on this for six hours and I can't get it. So that makes me happy. Judging by her very intelligent questions that she's been asking on the blog post, she's making good progress. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's grinding her way through. But Dorothy already has a background in object-oriented programming, Bart. Allison does not. Dorothy already has this, and this is hard for her. So that makes me feel so much better. If if I get a comment in the right place, I consider it a big victory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so with with that in mind, I guess we we can slightly jump ahead. We can uh, to, to the end. So... What we're going to do today is we're going to start learning about user input. But before we really start to get to the stage where I can set you a challenge in that, we actually need to do a couple of weeks of it. So in the meantime, we're going to sort of in parallel do revision of objecty stuff while we're learning about the user input stuff. So the challenge for today is not going to be related to the cool new stuff we do today. Oh, OK. It's going to be revision of the object oriented stuff. OK, so I'm going to get some practice, practice in. Yes. So at your suggestion, it's practice. I've been complaining um, to Bart that if I do something once, it's not exactly stuck in my brain. So I need some some repetitive action here to, to kind of get it stuck. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to homework where I get to repeat something. Yes, there are in fact three very similar pieces. Yeah, it's in fact it's three things. So it okay. is repeating very very literally repeating. And I'll do it six times so that I can get uh, whatever's eighteen versions. <laughs> there we go. Um, so I guess the first thing to, to to start with is to loop back to the end of the last uh, installment uh, where I set a challenge. So last time we had worked through, I think, I may have lost count, I think it was the third version of our clock uh-huh. that we had done as part of the installment. And then a fourth and final version was the uh, assignment for people, uh, the challenge, whatever we call it, uh, to, to do at home. Uh, And so the idea was to take what we had done together as the starting point and then to adapt it to make it even better, to make it more configurable. In fact, the focus was really on configurability. The the focus was on making this same clock API more useful in more situations. That was sort of the focus of the the challenge. And I did also say that you could rename it and Mm -hmm. put it into your own namespace, which would make it very much your implementation of the clock, you know, whether you be Allison or Dorothy or anyone else who's following at home. At home. And uh, so I specifically said three things that I would like to be configurable, but of course, the sky's the limit, right? You're writing your own clock. So anyone who wanted to add other features themselves was entirely free to do so. Um, so I, I think changed the, three the HTML I, yeah. to say my clock is better than Bart's. <laughs> <laughs> and also in the middle of that, I ended up with somehow the clock saying, what did it say? It said like seven, three. eight, W, L colon seven Q. <laughs> O-U-R was wedged in there between digits. It was very odd. I still don't know how you did that. Um, I wish I'd saved it in that version because it was purely comedic. I sent yeah. it to Dorothy and said, I think I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be in some language somewhere. It may have been a perfect current time. Uh, so the three things I suggested should be configurable were 
whether to use 12 or 24 hour format, which is probably the biggest sort of Marmite thing about clocks. People like me hate 12 hour clocks and find them annoying. And then Marmite? I think you prefer them. Marmite, it's, you know, oh, okay. So this is a term in the British House. Marmite is a type of spread you put on bread, which is made from beef or something horrible. Okay. And it's the kind of thing which you either absolutely adore and swear by or absolutely detest. There is oh. no one who is meh about Marmite. It's you love it or you hate it. And so Marmite is a complete byword for something that people either love or hate. Oh, so okay. 12 hour clock is like that, right? People who like the 12 hour clock like the 12 hour clock. And people who like the 24 hour clock are very fond of the 24 hour clock. So I figured that was probably the most important thing to make configurable. Yeah. And See, I don't trust you with a 24 hour clock because you do the months and days uh, backwards. backwards. So I'm always worried backwards. you've done the same thing with your with your uh, your clocks, too. So I always have to convert it to say, do you mean 8 p.m.? Is that what 10 means? Morning or, or evening. Wait, 20? <laughs> yeah, 20 is always evening for me, which is morning for you, which really confuses everything. <laughs> and it's tomorrow for Alistair. Other than that, we got to remember. <laughs> Apart from that, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's the first thing I, I suggested making configurable. The second thing was whether or not to show seconds. I mean, sometimes the seconds are just a distraction. On the other hand, the seconds make it really obvious the clock is running. So maybe that's a good thing. I didn't go so far as to suggest has about milliseconds. <laughs> but you could, in theory, do that if you, <laughs> you so wished. Sorry, you shouldn't have drank your coffee at that moment. No, um, Bert and I are experimenting with uh, doing video while we're talking to each other. We're not recording video, but he saw me just about spit coffee out my nose just now. <laughs> Quite funny, actually. Um, and then the last thing I suggested was whether or not the, to make the separators blink. I thought that might be configurable because some people may like, especially if you don't show the seconds, it may be nice to have the blinking so that people get a an intuitive sense that the clock is running, but maybe it's just distracting, so maybe you actually don't want that. Hmm. So there were the three things I suggested as being sane things to make configurable within your clock and also rename it if you like. Uh, so I took myself very seriously in my own homework and decided to do those three things and many more. And I actually released it as a full open source API. And um, oh, so I cool. did. So bertificer.worldclock is on GitHub. And so I did those three things. I made those configurable. I also made configurable uh, what opacity counts as the separator being on and what opacity counts as the separator being off. So when I have them blink <laughs> off, I leave 20% of them visible by default. And when they're on, they're only 80% visible by default. But you can configure that if you like. I also make configurable the amount of milliseconds the blink takes. Because <laughs> okay. You may want a very subtle pulse or you may want a very snappy. Why blink, wouldn't you have it pulse you on the seconds? I've never seen a clock that didn't pulse on the seconds. Well, it does, but how quick does it go from on to off? Oh. It turns off. On one and turns on on the next, but how long does it take to animate between the two? Okay. They're going to have a very staccato clock or a very subtle clock. Either way, it's configurable. Uh, I also decided that making it only work in spans was too restrictive, so I made mine work in spans, divs, paragraphs, or headers. So hmm. H1 through H6. Um, and I also decided that a suggestion you made in passing to add support for a special value in the time zone field, which is local in all caps, which will not use a time zone and actually show the time in the browser's local time zone. Ooh, so when I implement this on podfeed.com, it will sh Oh, no, I got to be careful. I can't use local to nope. show what time it is at my house because that'll just show you what time it is at your house. Right. I have exactly. to be specific, yeah. but I could let you have one that says, okay. Yeah, so when the your house clock, which you label as your house, would have local as the time zone yeah and the allison's house clock will be explicitly america slash los underscore angeles 
Right, right. Now, I did read in the uh, moment.js uh, uh, documentation that you can subtract times. You can. So you we can, could, oh, yeah, moment, moment lets you do really cool stuff. So we could add a configuration that says, uh, this is how long it is until the show. That's a countdown, so that would be a whole new API, I think. Oh, oh, you're right. But that's not a bad thing to to do, and you certainly could with using moment.js as your. Actually, you know, yeah, we don't need your time zone work. to do that. We only need mine to yeah, say it's three exactly. o'clock. I need it to say two hours. Right, so you could do a countdown timer. Maybe that should be another oh, practice session. I think that, I think I've just yeah. I'm always looking for practical things to do as assignments. I think we've just stumbled onto the next one. Good, oh, good, good. Mentally okay. noted. Anyway, so. Everything is on GitHub. That means all the code is on GitHub, and it also means I have done my usual full detailed documentation on GitHub. And so we could spend an hour going through it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, instead, I'm going to say that anyone who wants to poke around with it is entirely welcome to. But I thought I'd highlight a few things I thought might be worth mentioning that people may or may not have done themselves quite the same way or may have been wondering about. Some of this was uh, prompted by questions from Dorothy, for example. So the first thing is... I wanted you to make it so that you could change your mind after you made a clock. So you could, in the constructor, say, show me the seconds, and then later say, actually, do you know what? No, take them away, using the accessor method. So that means that you have a question, how do I deal with the change of mind? Do I make all the spans and then hide those that are not needed right now? Or do I only build what I need and create the other one when it's needed later and then delete it when it's not needed later? I don't understand. Deleting, do what do you mean deleting the spans? Let's say you say you want seconds. So I make a span for minutes, a span for the separator, a span for hours, another span for another separator, and then a span for seconds. Right. So I've built five spans. Right. And then you later say, actually, turn show seconds to false. Two of those spans have become irrelevant. Okay. Is that waste? So they need to, they need to go away. So well, do they go away by being hidden? Or do they go away by being deleted? Why wouldn't they just go away by uh, not being appended? Okay, but the append happens once when the clock is created. So once the clock is created, you can't go back in time to the append. The constructor happens once. Then you're using the accessor method to change the current value within the clock. Yeah, see, this is right where I happen to be stuck in my logic, right where you just found it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the constructor builds the initial clock, but then it, it never runs again, right? When you say new, uh, whatever, podfeet.com, world clock or whatever you called your prototype uh -huh. the constructor happens once and then for that object that's it it never gets constructed again it now exists and it has properties it has a span called underscore dollar minutes and it has a span called and they're already appended hour. and they're already appended why so what you, do you do why wouldn't you make the append after all that because that would that makes more sense to me to say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna need some seconds so let me append those Right. So the yeah, so the approach I took was indeed to do that. Build everything I might ever need. Mm -hmm. And then use jQuery's hide function to hide what I don't want now. But then in the future, when someone says actually show me seconds, all I gotta do is call jQuery's show function because it already exists. So that's what the approach I took was. When when are they changing everything. their mind? I don't understand. When they build their HTML, they're gonna put in true or false for seconds. Sure. Yeah. So that, and if they the change it to false, a... then it'll run again, in which case you don't have. Right. But imagine a clock where we've moved on a little bit to where we know user input and we have a button oh. saying toggle seconds and the user's clicking a button because they're changing their mind, literally in real time, changing their mind. Okay. So not in the typing out HTML method. 
Okay, okay, yeah, I see that. Okay. Method, the constructor is king, right? Yeah, There yeah. is no changing your mind. It's constructed once, that's what it says, all good and well. Okay. But I, yeah. I so see our, what you're saying. Okay, looking forward, got it. Looking for yeah, exactly. So the API supports the concept of calling a function to change the value of a configuration, which means the clock has to change. And do you change by deleting and appending again, or do you change by hiding and showing? And I just went, oh, I'll hide and show. Hide and show is so much easier than... <laughs> create and delete. And you can do both, right? So jQuery has a function called dot remove, which will delete something. And it has a function called dot after to put one thing after another thing. So you could say, delete the separator, delete the seconds. And then you could say, oh, no, they need to come back. Okay, make a new one and put a dot after the minutes. But that just seemed like work, like not good kind of work. So I didn't do it that way. <laughs> okay. uh, but that was actually a question Dorothy asked is which of these two approaches is do you want? And I was like, oh, I don't want anything. I just want it to work. <laughs> yeah. You're the programmer. Okay. But both are valid approaches. So that, yeah, so I figured it was worth saying my approach was just hide and show, hide and show. She's used to working uh, at the direction of a program manager who will tell her what they what she wants, right? Because right. then she because she's doing a job, not writing her own yeah. clock. When you're scratching your own itch, you have the power to tell yourself what to do, which is pleasant. Right, right. So the second thing to draw your attention to is what happens as you start making more and more things configurable. Which is right now when you and I were having our pre-show pre pre-show chat, not pre-chat show, um, we, 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 you were sort of getting to that stage in your code where you you had successfully made one thing configurable and you were moving on to making two things configurable. Sorry, you already had the time zone configurable and the blinker, so a third thing configurable. And in my case, I made at least five things configurable. So that would mean that if I did it the way that we did the time zone, I would have a constructor that takes six things. First, the span, then the time zone, then whether or not it blinks, then one opacity, then the other opacity, then how long to animate, then whether to use AM or whether to use 12 hour or 24 hour. And that I think also wasteful. Have an option. it's not just wasteful. Imagine trying to write code like that. That's just confusing. You have these six magic numbers. What, what does it mean? If, I, if you see a constructor with just six values in it, like, what does it mean? Oh, okay. Yeah. So that is getting right where I was starting to go. Hmm. Hmm. So I decided not to do it that way. I decided to take all of my options as a single argument and make that argument into a plain object. So that argument would simply be name value pairs. Oh, I kind of like and that. Then yeah. And then it's easy to leave out what you don't care about, right? Because you only specify what you care about and they all go into the one second argument. So mm. that was the option I chose. Okay. And then I decided to make my own life easier another way. So... You have noticed at this stage that in, inside your constructor, you have a whole big chunk of code that deals with the time zone. And mm -hmm. then you have, separate to that, a whole big chunk of code that deals with whether or not to blink. 12, I think is no, no, 12, the 1224. I, I didn't even start on the blink because Dorothy couldn't get it to blink. So I'm not even going to try that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I got seconds then, to show up. So that was a big victory. Yeah. Till I broke and it. The third one then was whether or not to do seconds. But those, so you and your constructor have three distinct pieces of code to do each of those three things. And what I'm sure you will find if you look at those three pieces of code is they're awfully similar to each other. Yeah, they are. So I decided not to write three pieces, of, not to write six pieces of code that's awfully similar to each other. So I created a data structure called option details. And I just created an entry in there for every possible thing I make configurable in which I, just, I say, an English description for that thing, a default value for that thing, and a function to validate that thing. Hmm. And then in my constructor, I just call them all. 
Can I ask you one sideways question here? Yeah. In your description, you call it uh, the time zone for the clock as an IANA string. What the heck is IANA? IANA is the International Association of something something numbery things. I- they're the peop- they are the people who, like the ISO, do a whole bunch of standards. The IANA do time zones. Oh, they okay. Have a, it's like a They're the ones who made that table. Yes, exactly. Okay. So in the documentation from API, there's actually a list to the table from IANA, which actually okay. spares every single existing something slash something and how many, how many it is from UTC and all that kind of stuff. It's all in there. It's a big table. So they're the people what decide what time zones are real. International Assigned Numbers Authority. And they do time zones. That's not a number. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Poorly named. It's kind of a... Oh, no, it isn't a number. Well, it causes numbers to happen. It does cause numbers to happen. I think they do. Maybe they're in charge of, like, pi or something. <laughs> By the way, did you know if you ask the Amazon Echo, uh, what is pi? She just starts talking and never stops. <gasps> it's hilarious. By design? Or when you oh, say no, never, no. I presume... I don't know. I let it run for about four or five minutes if she was still going. But you can't interrupt her. It's not like you've just bricked your... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You can. You just say, Alexa, stop. Which, it turns out, you have to say to Alexa a lot. But okay. Oh, right. So he goes off on one. He goes, no, shut up. <laughs> no, because Captain, isn't there an episode of Star Trek, the original series, where Spock, the computer goes evil and Spock kills it by asking it to calculate pi through the last digit? Oh. <laughs> the computer just never comes back. It's just, okay, I'm gone now. I like anyway. it. Anyway. All right. So for every possible thing, I have elements in this object that basically describe it. So the example I have in the show notes, I didn't want to copy and paste them all because all the code is there on GitHub. So time zone contains description colon. The time zone for a clock is an IANA string or local. Default colon local. Validator colon is time zone, which I have a comment after saying a reference to a previously defined function. In other words, for everything, I'm going to say, how do we check if it's okay? and just give it an argument that is a callback or a reference to a function. So when I decided to add every extra thing, I didn't have to write lots of code in my constructor. I just added another entry into this data structure, and my constructor simply works its way through the data structure and checks everything. Very cool. Can so I interrupt means- you one more time? No, it'll be, there'll be a lot more times, but I, I sent you a note about this. I don't know if you saw it. I just... Cool found the button that causes your little code blocks to word wrap oh there is a button oh look there's one that it's looks the like third button so what i've been doing for 26 episodes is copying everything uh, clicking the button that shows it to the straight code without the numbers copying it opening up a text editor and pasting it that's what i've been doing for 26 episodes so that i could see the stuff to the right if it makes you feel better allison i'm not sure that was always there Remember, oh. this is a wordpress plugin so it's been updated because oh, I keep my plugins up to date because I don't remember there being that many icons. Okay, good. Because it's just like, are you freaking kidding me? I could have all, I could have been reading all this stuff. So for the listener, for the reader, hit that little, the third icon there. It's got two lines and a, and a return arrow and it just kind of word wraps that bad boy in there. It's which it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing. And the, the, the one next to it actually gets rid of the, vert, it seems to stop the vertical scroll bar coming in after a certain length, which is mm. also useful. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway. Um, okay. And then I also, so I made this data structure and I, when I was making it, I also added into the data structure two optional things. So everything has a description, everything has a default, everything has a validator. I also said that something can have a coerce, which is a concept that is, it's a common computer science technique. It's like, 
how you basically formally define how you're going to make a square peg fit in a round hole called a coercion. So you can coerce something from a string to a number by just writing some logic that says, this is how I'm going to do it. And maybe every single string in the world goes to the number zero. That's a coercion. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, this, so I just basically said, if I want to, I can define a coercion. And I only actually used one, which is any value you give me, I will make it be true or false through a coercion. That way, if someone says, show seconds one, my code isn't going to barf. It's going to go, fine, I'll coerce you. You become true. That's okay. Oh, interesting. It allows me to be a bit more friendly. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Well. Okay. And then, and then the last one is, a ch- is called onChange, which, which is expecting a function to be handed to it. And that's going to be the function I run when this option changes. So when someone changes show seconds, I get to write all my code in there that says, well, what does that mean? It means I hide this or I show this. Hmm. So the definition of what okay. an option is and how the option works are together within the code. They're right next to each other. So everything to do with the time zone is all together. Everything to do with whether or not to show seconds is all together. Hmm. Cool. I say, it, yeah, no, yeah. that's that's a lot cleaner because it was already yes. starting to get kind of long and I was having to scroll up and down to go, how did he do that? How did down here? How, how did he do that? Okay, go back down here. And that right, was going to exactly. only get worse as I got farther into it. Exactly. And that's what I ran into. So Further. I wrote this and I started getting, oh, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. And I, oh, my God, this is spaghetti code. Stop. <laughs> And it also means that instead of having to write an accessor for changing the time and an, or an accessor for changing the format and another accessor function for changing whether or not to show seconds and another accessor function for changing whether or not to do something else, I wrote one accessor function called option, which takes as the first argument what it is you want to change and the second argument with what new value to give it. So just like the CSS function in jQuery, the first argument is what it is. The second argument, if present, is set a new value. And if there is no second argument, it means get me the value. Okay. So anyway, that's that's all there. Uh, and the last thing I want to draw your attention to, and I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, it is it is a potentially esoteric point, which some of our listeners may find really cool, but which you can go through your entire life without knowing, so I'm not <laughs> sure how long to focus on it. But I said to you many moons ago that in JavaScript, pretty much everything is an object. A fun- an array is an object. A string is an object. And a function is an object. And 99.9% of the time, that's a trivia fact. It's a, oh, okay, in JavaScript, functions are objects, don't you know? But it's not (laughs) meaningful to your everyday stuff. But the thing is, it's an object, and it's an object that has a prototype. And the prototype is function with a capital F, which is part of the JavaScript language. And that uh, prototype provides functions. So every function contains functions within it that are standard, that are provided by the language. And one of those functions is named dot call. I'm being very careful with my words here because it could get very confusing. So it's named dot call. And what it does is it runs the function, but it shifts all the arguments by one. So the first argument is not the first argument to the function. The second argument is the first argument to the function. The first argument is whatever this is going to be within the function. So I say that this can be all sorts of things. Well, when you use call, you get to choose what this will be. So inside the function, you set the value of this. And that way, my onChange handlers can have a meaningful this, because I've chosen what it is. And that's the only reason I mentioned it. By choosing what it is, you mean choosing what you name it? No. So when when I call call, when I... Yeah, no, I got you. 
apply the call function to a function. Uh -huh. The first argument is whatever this will be. The second argument is the first argument. The third right. argument is the second argument. So I am specifying which value this will have. Okay. I'm not going to ask any more questions. <laughs> like I say, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is that we're, we're deep down the rabbit hole here. So okay. for those of you who are interested in how that works, it's a trick we've seen before, by the way. jQuery does it all the time. So you remember in jQuery when we do a dot each loop, this variable always has like a special value and the documentation says that we will make sure that this is a reference to something. Well, that's how they're doing it. It's not magic. They're using jQuery's inbuilt features to, or sorry, JavaScript's inbuilt features to do it. Hmm. So if you ever find yourself needing to control the value of this, what you need to do is read the documentation for dot call. Okay. And if you never find yourself needing to do that, you know, life goes on. It's fine. <laughs> So that's all I'll say about my solution. Everything is there on the GitHub page, uh, including a worked example um, and lots of detailed documentation. So people cool. can have fun. So now we get to do new stuff. Yay. Web forms. Less headbendy, so, you promised. Oh, yeah, totally less headbendy because we're, we're now back to, and this is the very basics because yes. that's where we have to start. It's a whole new topic. So, so far we have been a web 1.0 sort of outfit here. Everything we've been doing has been at the user. We have taken zero input from the user, which is web 2.0 world, if we go back to that whole well, O'Reilly. When we were on PBS. Uh, uh, the PBS play yeah, the playground, playground we right. did. But that wasn't on the web. True. We're out of but, the sandbox now. Exactly. So while the, the sandbox had text boxes and buttons, we have never created text Oh, boxes. right, 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 right. Well, okay. Yeah, we've used them in the sandbox. So the sandbox is, uses user input, but we haven't actually done any. We haven't used it. We, you know, we haven't created a dropdown. We haven't created a checkbox. We haven't created a button. We haven't done any of that kind of stuff. So that's what we're moving on to. So the first thing to say is that within the web, all user inputs are contained within form. So every input, no matter what type it is, whether it's a button or a text box or a text area or a drop down or a radio button or I'm sure I've missed one. But anyway, it doesn't matter what they are. Whatever they are, they are within a form. Every, you cannot have a form within a form. You can't nest forms, which means that every input belongs to exactly one form. Okay. So a button in a form. A button is not in two forms. A <laughs> button is in a form. Okay. And the tag to define a form is very well named. Form. Open angle bracket, form, close angle bracket, all of your stuff, slash form. Okay. Right? All right. That's the first thing. Forms are wrapped in a form tag, and all of your input is in a form. Okay. So let's actually just dive straight in. Uh, I have here our first form with the wonderful and revealing subheading doing it wrong. <laughs> let, let's do it wrong. Oh, no. So this is pbs27-1a.html, and the entire file is only 35 lines long. So there's okay. not much here, and most of it is our boilerplate, right? Right. Uh, so before we do, before we look at the code, could you just open that in a browser and I just have, it? have a poke? Okay, now I need to actually, I should have thought So it says our first form, parentheses bad, and I have a little uh, box where I can type in my name, and then I can type, I can hit a button that says hello. So I'm going to type in my name. Yes, and, and when you hit hello. the button... Says hello there, Allison. It yes, doesn't seem so bad. It, it seems rather polite. 
It is. It's, it's polite. That's certainly true. Uh, sorry, I am trying to remember. PBS demos, I think I called the folder. Sorry. Because <laughs> I have these. All the demos are on my web server. I just don't always advertise them. Oh, okay. That way you can get to them. 27 because I'm an idiot. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave it to you too. You're, you're going to be my eyes and ears. Okay. Sounds good. So, so why is this, this bad? This seems to work. Okay. Well, we'll break it in a minute. Let's explain how it works before we break it. So we'll jump down to the body section of the code first. So line 27. We have an H1 tag. Nothing surprising there. Our first form bad. Then we have a form tag. We've never seen one of those before. And then we'll notice that, that form tag doesn't end until line 32. Right. Twice. Okay. In between the start and the end of the form, we have a paragraph which contains the word name colon. And then we have another new tag we've never seen before. Input. Type equals text. ID equals hello underscore name. Okay. So that may tell you that the way you make a text box is an input type equals text. Right. Below that, we have another paragraph which contains another tag you've never seen before, the button tag, with the very stupid-looking button type equals button. That is okay. not optional, because the default for a button is not to be a button. Wait, what? No, I'm not making it. The default, if you do not give button a type, it will become a submit button instead of a button button. Oh, interesting. So you have to define the type equals button within the button. To make it be a button, yeah. Otherwise, okay. it becomes a submit button. They okay. do different things. I, I, again, give it an ID. We'll see why later. Um, and then it, the button text goes inside the button tag. So say hello is the text of the button. And it's between button and slash button. Okay. I hate to learn this because I don't, I don't know what part is bad for me to be learning. Well, there's nothing here. Okay. What we have here is all correct. It's incomplete. Oh, okay. Good. So it's, yeah, there's nothing here that is wrong. It's just not, there's it it's not enough. It is, it is insufficient. There is okay. more needed, but this, okay. this is all correct so far. And then the last thing we have is just an empty div with the ID of hello's region spelt wrong. Uh, that should be hello region that I completely misspelled, but it's misspelled in the JavaScript too, so it works. Okay, good. <laughs> Why do and we that's have just that? The where we put the hello messages. Pardon? Oh, okay. Oh, so okay, right, right, right. Just, just empty. Yeah, okay. Just a div. So that's the HTML for that form, which isn't all that exciting. Uh, what is above there then is the JavaScript to make the form actually do something. So the first thing is we include jQuery because that's the kind of people we are. Mm -hmm. right? So include jQuery, script source equals blah, blah, blah. Then we have our own script. So the first thing is we have the dollar function, which is passed as its one and only argument, an anonymous function. So do you remember what that does? I don't understand the question. So the dollar function does different things depending on what arguments you give it. So if you give the dollar function a, a selector string as the argument, it will find all elements that match that selector. If you give the dollar function a function as the first argument, what does it do? Executes the function. When? Ah, when the DOM loads. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, so in other words, when the DOM becomes ready, we will execute the following code. Okay. The first thing we do is we use the dollar function to get a reference to the button. So we say dollar pound sign hello underscore button because the button has an ID of hello underscore button. So hence we get it with pound sign hello button. And we add a click handler. And we've seen click handlers before, right? We had a click handler on paragraphs, which is an odd thing to do. And the reason we did it on paragraphs is simply that I hadn't taught you about buttons yet. <laughs> okay. So a click handler on a button is a much more normal thing to see. Okay. And the click handler, of course, takes one argument, which is another anonymous function. In other words, what code to run when someone clicks the button. So we make a variable called dollar hello, 
and we use the dollar function again to build a paragraph. So it's just the string P inside angle brackets. And then we set the text of that new paragraph we've made to hello there, followed by something we'll get to in a minute, followed by an exclamation point. And then we shove that onto the end of our misspelled div. Okay. Using the append function from jQuery again. So how did we read your name from the text area? Sorry, text box. We use the dollar function again with pound sign hello underscore name to get a reference to the input. And then we call the jQuery function we've never seen before, val. Wait, 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 back up. You just said hello underscore name, and I don't see that anywhere on this page. Oh, down there in the text. Okay, so you gave it a... On line 30, you've got uh, the ID equals hello name. Got that. So on line 19, we actually make use of that. We say hello.text, hello there. Oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah. So we say dollar pound hello name. In other words, get me that that exact okay. uh, text box down there. And on that text box, run the function val, V-A-L, hmm. which is short for value. And it what can't that be mean? value. Because val- right. What that means is, if I use val with no arguments, I want the text from the text box, please. So $hellonamed.val is whatever you typed into that text box. Okay. So in other words, we are saying, make the text of the new paragraph be the words hello there, concatenated with whatever is in the text box, concatenated with the exclamation point. Why do you... That doesn't seem like you'd have to add that. It seems like you could just say, grab that string. Why are we saying value? Okay, but how do I get the string? So dollar, dollar, dollar pound sign hello name doesn't get a string. It gets a jQuery object that represents an HTML element. That HTML element Do- is wait, a Wait, how is dollar pound hello underscore name a jQuery object? Where did that happen? Okay, so the dollar function, when you give it as the only argument, a string that is a CSS selector, it will give you a jQuery object that matches what, wait, that. Wait, what, what CSS selector? Is that the pound click function? Hello underscore name. No, pound hello underscore name is a CSS selector. Give me the thing with the ID hello underscore name. Remember, dot means class, pound means ID. So pound hello underscore right, name. So I've got, I've got the ID, hello, hello underscore name. Mm-hmm. I, I've grabbed it by putting that pound sign in front of it. Why do I have to yeah. talk about a value for it? I've, I've already got it. No, you've got the element. You've got... You don't right, have what's inside it? Par- yeah, you don't have what's inside it. You've got to actually reach into the element and get out its value. So if you had a paragraph to get its text, you had to go dot text. Well, to get the value from an input, you say dot val. And if you use dot val with an argument, you actually do the opposite. You set the value. Hmm. Okay. So if you had dot val boogers, then the text box would be, re- whatever you had in there would become boogers. Okay. So it's a typical jQuery right. thing. There's a lot more talk. to learn in this one little box than I expected on this really? lesson. I thought this would be no. light and I've already got, I'm, that's a lot. Okay. I know you think okay. it's light, but it's not for me. Well, I'm pretty much done. Uh, okay. Except this is the wrong way. This is the incomplete way. Okay. Right. So this clearly works, right? You typed in Allison, you hit say hello, and it okay. said, hey, hello there, Allison, exclamation point. So clearly this does do what I say it does. However, we can break it without very much effort. So could you put your cursor in the text box? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, let's see. Um, 
I'm in the text box. Okay. Now hit the enter key. Nothing happens. It disappeared. It, it disappeared. The page reloaded. Right. So hit, say hello to yourself 10 times and then hit the enter key and you will see what all of them are gone and the page reloaded. You're back to where you started. Wait a minute. Say hello. Ten, oh, okay. Okay. Got you. And then if I hit enter so in there. Not, okay. Because people would naturally hit enter. Right. People hit enter all the time. If you watch human beings typing, they, they whack on that enter key bilio. Yeah. And they I always do. something sane to happen and something sane might be that. It says hello to you. Uh, something sane is absolutely positively not. The page just reloaded. Okay. So why? What, what, that, that doesn't make sense. Why did it do that? The answer is because of baggage. Because of historic baggage. Because the internet is old and web forms predate the very concept of JavaScript. So when the World Wide Web was born, there was no concept of running code on the client side. The server gave you some HTML. It might contain a form where you could type in some stuff and you would then push a submit button and the page would go to a whole new URL where the server would give you an answer to that query. Oh, okay. So when you hit a button, you always went to another page, right? You remember those days on the internet. You Maybe. Would always... Okay. Well, it used to be the case that if you wanted to send an email... You would type up your email into the Hotmail, you would hit send, and then the whole page would refresh, and then you go back to something else. Okay. You type something onto an, into, oh, a web web visitor log, that thing that we used to have on the internet that no one has anymore on their page because it was oh, always right, full right, of right. to each other. Every time you hit submit, the whole thing refreshed. If you checked out on Amazon or whatever, you would hit checkout, and the whole page would always refresh. Everything was always a page refresh. Oh, so like you couldn't, you couldn't say delete one of the 12 things you were buying from Amazon you'd have to, without reloading the page. Right, you'd click okay. delete, the whole page would reload and show you the list without the thing on it. You click yeah. plus one, the I whole think page there's web pages that still do that. But okay. There are. Oh, absolutely, right? It still works. You can still write code that way if you so feel. But that used to be the only way you could work because there was no concept of code running in the browser. So the browser couldn't do it, the server always had to do it. So every form submission meant you go to the server, the server does something, and the server gives you an answer. So every time you submit a form, it goes to a web, it expects to go to a web server. That's what the internet was designed to do. But in the days of JavaScript, we don't want that. We want the JavaScript to deal with it, not to go and annoying a server anywhere. So this is all controlled through the action attribute on the form tag. So form action equals something. And if you don't say form action equals something, then the action is a default, some kind of default. So the question is, well, what kind of default? Or actually, what exact default? And the answer is the default for the action is an empty string. And when you interpret an empty string as a URL, what do you get? What is nothing relative? What is, if I give you the URL potfee.com and say, I want you to go relative to that by nothing. It's where you already are. Where you already are. Okay. The relative URL to the current page is the empty string. So by default, whenever a form submits, it refreshes the current URL. Okay. You do nothing, which is why. Now, the second thing is browsers have shortcuts because they think people want to submit forms. So when you hit the enter key in any input in a form, the form gets submitted. So what you did by hitting enter was submit the form with no specified action. So it just refreshed the page. Okay. So we want to stop that default because that default is harmful to us. All right. So we don't want to use the default action. We want to use a very special action. 
JavaScript colon void open parens zero close parens semicolon. That is your latest copy and paste job. <laughs> so don't try to remember that one as much as just learn how to copy and paste it always. Or make a text expander snippet. <laughs> okay. So whenever you start a form, you will always start it with angle bracket form space action equals quote JavaScript colon void open parens zero close parens semicolon close quote close angle bracket. Okay. That is okay. how you start a form. Okay. So bearing that in mind, we now have uh, pbs27-1b.html, which is exactly identical to 1a, except on line 29, it says form action equals JavaScript colon void. Okay, so now when I put my uh, my cursor in that uh, in the text box and I hit enter, just nothing at all happens. Nothing at all happens. Void. So that's happens. what we told nothing it. Is. Okay. That's what we told. So that's so why we now you call this our first form better. It doesn't refresh the page, but it also doesn't do anything. So I'm guessing that the third one's going to be it's actually going to execute the button. Oh, no, the button does execute, right? When you, well, I could have done that, but I didn't think that. Oh, okay. Right. No. The, <laughs> well, the, you might the have several way we make, the, the way we make this even better is by thinking of the people who need accessibility. That's okay. what's missing from this form is accessibility, okay. which means it functions, but only if you're a sighted person which is not a nice way to write webby stuff. Well, I was thinking so about it when you had button, because I know that's the bane of, of uh, accessibility is when you get to something that says button, it's like, thanks. Really appreciate your help. It's a button. <laughs> what is it? Well, there is, an, there is a wrong way to do buttons, which I haven't even shown you. This way of doing buttons with a button tag with text inside it can never cause that problem. Oh, okay. Because there is text between button and slash button, so that text is always there, so you can't have that silly problem. There is another uh, way see. to so, do buttons. Wh where have we told it? Have we done that yet? Or you're about we to? We haven't done anything. No, no. So okay. the button I'm saying is the one thing we don't have to change. So, be, there, right. The way I've shown you to do buttons is with the button tag. There is another way to do buttons that used to exist before HTML5, which I'm not going to tell okay. you what it is because okay. then you might do it wrong. And yeah, when okay. you did it the old way, it was very easy to accidentally make a button that didn't know what it was. Okay. To do this kind of stupid thing, button, and annoy everyone. But the way I've done it here, you can't do... It, it takes effort to do it wrong this way. Well, I'm I sure also know people can. People create buttons where they type the text into their pixel editor where they created the look of the button. And Amazon does that all the time. Uh, now that I have a German Amazon affiliate that's doing quite well, thank you very much. Uh, anyway, I, when I go over there, I can go to there in Chrome and it translates everything for me except the buttons. They still say, I've Wiedersehen or something on them. It's like, come on. So I assume that's probably not accessible either. But anyway, okay. Is, well, it might be. It might have an alt tag that could be translated. Maybe. You should Maybe. check that. Yes. Okay. So what we need to do to make a form accessible is we need to label are inputs. Okay. And we label inputs with a very well-named tag, the label tag. Hmm. So name colon is a label for our input, but nothing in the HTML tells a screen reader that's what it is. Right now, it's just some text. So we need to actually say this text belongs to that input over there. Oh, oh the so the screen reader down. would still see name colon, but it wouldn't know it was associated with that with that text input box. Correct. That, that what I'm supposed to, when I get to the text input box, what am I supposed to do there? Exactly. Yeah. So which bit of text is actually telling the user what this input is? Okay. And can and that so just be a long string? You could say, please enter your name here, colon. It could be anything, right? Okay. So the point is there will be That's some my text point. on that your was my question. that is a label. 
Yeah. So okay. what we're doing is we're not actually going to change how the page looks. We're going to change what we say it is. So we're going to use a label tag to say that name is a label for that thing over there. And okay. there's actually two ways of doing it. So you can put a label tag around everything. So open the label tag, say name colon space input type equals text slash label. So in other words, the name and the input it belongs to are all together inside a label. So there's a label there's label inside um images too. And when you hover over them you get the label. But they're titles. That's a title attribute. Or the alt you're, Oh, you're right. You're right. That's title not label. Got you. Okay. Yeah, so label we've never seen before. Okay. So we can take a label tag and wrap it around the 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 description and the text box being described and put the two of them together into the label. And that will work. Then the browser goes, ah, so name is associated with that input because they're together in a label. They're snugly confined. Sometimes you may not want to do it that way because you may have the label somewhere else and, you you know, you may have something between them, some sort of icon or you may be very boldly using tables for layout and they're in different cells. There may be all sorts of reasons that you don't do that. So the other way is to put the label only around the text and then to say for equals the id of the thing you're labeling label for quote and then what name. goes in there is an id yeah so what goes into the for attribute is the id of the thing you're labeling let me let me so look at this for case. a second label for equals uh, uh quote hello name close mm-hmm. bracket uh name colon slash label then put right. the input type and importantly, ID equals. So the ID of the input matches the four in the label. And that's how the browser knows, ah, you are for him. Okay. For but her. again, those two, those two, the, the label and the four uh, and the input could be in two totally different places. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they could be miles apart in your code. Okay. Okay. And they will still know, ah, you belong to you. So just four and then the ID. Okay. Now, doing this the right way, A, it makes all screen readers work better. So that in itself is a pretty darn good reason to do it. Right. But even those sighted people get a small benefit out of it. And that benefit varies depending on the input type. But I think it's, I, I hate people who write bad forms. So there is a final version of our form, which is unsurprisingly called pbs27-1c.html. <laughs> and the only difference between 1b uh, and 1c is that I have put a label around name. Okay. And told it that it is the label for the input for the text box. So now if you refresh the page and just use it like you did before, you'll see it works just like before. Nothing special. Right. Just click somewhere on the page that's not the text box so that the cursor is not in the text box. Okay. Now click on the word name. Oh. My cursor jumps into the text box. Your cursor comes jumps into the text box. So if you were Hmm. tabbing around the page with a screen reader or something and you got to that label and you said, okay, do that. It must jump you straight into the text box. Oh. Now, if that was a checkbox and you clicked on the label of the checkbox, it would have just checked itself. Ah. So you know the way you put a checkbox and then yes, and then a checkbox and then no, and some people put no and then a checkbox and then yes and then a checkbox? Yeah. And you know you want yes. Well, if they've labeled their inputs, all you do is click what you want and the right checkbox will and check. And I hate it when it doesn't do that. Right. I can't stand it when it doesn't do that. So and if they're doing label know. four, that's how they're causing it to do it correctly. Yes. If they don't label their inputs, then you can't click on the name. 
And what if you had done the label the other way, uh, the first way you talked about doing it, where it was the the label was on either side, the tags were on either side of the input? Would it do the it same? It would have thing? been the same. Okay, exactly the same. So okay. the user experience is no different. This just seems cleaner window. than to, it's it's like doing too many parenthetical expressions the other way to me. Excessively, I, seems easy I, I much prefer the approach of make a label, say what it's for, make the thing. So, yeah. But either way, different people have different preferences and both are valid. They're both legal. They're both correct. They're, they will both work. So, they're always better. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's often, very often. So that's, that's all we're doing today in terms of new stuff. I like it. I like it. So you can get a taste of where we're going here, right? Yeah. Um, obviously... We need to learn even just text boxes we haven't learned nearly all about. So even text boxes we have to revisit. We definitely have to revisit buttons because they can do many more cool things. And then we've got to learn about checkboxes and radio buttons and drop downs, date pickers, text areas, which are different to text boxes. That needs explaining. Lots of stuff to do. So you can see we're starting. Can they be little bites like this? Yes, that's the idea. <laughs> even if this takes 12 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're in no hurry, right? And the thing is, Everything keeps changing. So no matter how fast or how slow we go, we could go on forever if we wanted. Because mm -hmm. new There's stuff will be invented. End. Right, exactly. There's never an end. Just picture, so, we're on Programming by Stealth, episode 237, and, and you're talking about HTML 26. <laughs> theoretically, right? And you're gray along with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hope so. That'd be nice <laughs> if, we, if we live long enough to get to HTML 3000 and something. Yeah. Um. So I obviously am setting you a challenge about just that very simple stuff we've done today. So instead, in parallel to learning these bite-sized chunks, we are going to do revision of objects because, well, I know you're struggling with them and I know you're not alone because people write me comments, people Twitter me stuff. So I know that there is a general consensus that objects are hard. Okay, good. Or rather that until that magic moment happens when the penny hits the ground, objects are really confusing. Yep. It's not it's not quite the same thing, but you know what I mean. So for our experimentation, so first off, the relevant things to go look back at are installments 17 and 19. So I've linked those. Oh, good. And also to say that we're back to the playground for our experimentation. Hmm. So there's another okay. blast from the past. So I'll put another link to that in there. So we are going to, I talked to you about this yesterday, um, and you said that it's okay to do things that are not, new you are re you know you're reinventing the wheel but you're doing it because it's good practice so javascript contains really good prototypes for dealing with dates and times and things like that i haven't told you about them yet but they exist we are now going to make a row and they are going to be worse than the ones <laughs> javascript provides okay because we're not doing it to get good dates we're doing it to practice writing prototypes okay so i just want to say that so these are not going to be the world's best date and time objects probably going to be among the world's worst date and time objects. But they are objects you're going to make prototypes to build objects. That's the point. So, all right. So maybe, how like, do we go back to the whole why we care about this? Sure. You want me to spend five minutes saying why we care? Yeah, yeah. So an object is some data and the functions to manipulate that data all packaged together. So if you have an object that represents the current time, it should provide you with functions to maybe convert the current time to 12-hour clock or something like that. Or if you look at our clocks, they contained functions to start and stop the clock. There were bits of code. So sure. the clock was 
some information and some functions to mess around with that information. So an object is data and functions. Okay. Now, they come in kinds or types or classes. And I have to be really careful what words I use because every sodding programming language uses their own vocabulary. So if we were Java people, we would say that objects have classes. Um, in some languages, objects have types. In JavaScript, objects have prototypes. So we mm. used our example of clocks. We made two different clocks. Those two clocks both had the prototype PBS-clock. So you might loosely say they were of the type PBS-clock. Or you could say that they are PBS clock. Okay. So the relationship between a prototype and objects is that a prototype makes many objects. So, so the clocks are I, the objects? Yes. The clocks are objects and they are instances of the prototype PBS world clock. So one prototype can make a million objects. And each object is an instance of whatever its prototype is. So there's a relationship between the objects and the prototype that they are. Okay. So what we're going to do for our homework is we're going to make three prototypes. And the reason we're doing three is because then we have repetition. Good. And this is repetitive. So if the first one is easy and you don't find yourself learning anything, no need to do the second one. It's just the same. But you may want to do both because that way you get to practice. And before you do that... See, this I'm is where you're different than me. If something's easy, I want to do more. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, what's the challenge is gone, I, I lose interest. <laughs> so we're going to do one together before we actually set you the homework. And in fact, we're going to do something even better. I'm going to give you an algorithm because I know you're a logical person. Okay. So I'm going to say that there's an algorithm you follow whenever you want to make a new prototype. And it's a six-step algorithm. And step one is the most important step of all. Figure out what you're doing. Gather your requirements. What you want to know before you start anything is what data do I need and what functions do I need? That is really what defines a prototype. What, what is the data and what are the functions? So I will tell you step one. That's how I'm going to do a challenge. So I'm going to say, I need a prototype that has this data and these functions. And then it's your job to build a prototype. Now, if you were working in a business or something, you might have to go ask someone else, well, what's in here? But anyway, the point is, before you can build your prototype, you need to know what's in it. Data and functions. So I'm going to give you step one in each challenge. Okay. But the point is, you have to know that information before you can do anything useful. Right. Step two is basically your boilerplate. You initialize your namespace, start your self-extracting anonymous function. Self-executing, you mean? Your... <laughs> self, what did I say? Extracting. Well, I self-executing. <laughs> self-extracting. Well, that's a zip file rather than... Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, yes. So that's just your boilerplate. So that's copy-paste job. That's easy. And then from step three on, you have work to do. Okay. First step is... Step three, which I'm calling the first step to confuse you completely. Mm -hmm. uh, so step three, write your constructor. It is generally true that your constructor should accept initial values for all of your object's pieces of data. So if your object has two pieces of data, your constructor should probably take two arguments. Okay. And if the constructor doesn't receive any arguments, you should use a sane default. Okay. Now, maybe there's no such thing as a sane default, and then all you can do is throw an exception. All but right. in the general case, a sane default. And finally, all the data that comes from the user is suspect. Therefore, you should validate it and throw an exception if it's garbage. 
Okay, so that's, that's the first hard bit of work. So write your constructor. When your constructor is done, write your accessor methods. So one accessor method for every one piece of data. If I say to you, I need a prototype with two pieces of data, you shall have two accessor methods. The accessor methods should take no argument to get the current value of that piece of data or one argument to set the value of that piece of data. Okay, let me so think about that for a second. Wait, wait, wait. One for each When called with no argument to accessor methods should get the current value. And the current value is that same default that we set? Or maybe the current value is the, set, the argument they pass. But either way, whatever the current value is, you give it back. No, no, no. You just said with no arguments. If there's no arguments, then you can't take the argument that it, they gave you because they didn't give you an argument. Okay. So step three was about the constructor. Step four is about these accessor methods. I know, but you, so the, the second argument- sentence of step four says, when called with no arguments, right, yes. you can't say so use an argument. Method- when the accessor method is called with, called with no arguments. It doesn't say anything about how the constructor is. Don't know what you mean then. You just said there's no arguments. How can there be an argument if there's no arguments? Okay. The constructor is a thing, right? The constructor is a function that starts with var name of prototype equals function, and that function will define some arguments. And then you're going to write some code, and you're going to close that function. Mm-hmm. You're now finished with the constructor. Mm-hmm. An entirely separate task is to write an accessor method for every piece of data in your object. Mm-hmm. And each of those methods is a function. Its name will be whatever the piece of data is. So the first example we'll work through is someone's full name is what we're going to write a prototype for. And that full name consists of two pieces of data. I need to be careful how I hold my fingers up. Uh, two pieces of data, your first name and your surname. This is a very simplistic version of a name, right? We're ignoring titles. We're ignoring middle names. A name consists of a first name and a last name. So two pieces of data. Yes? You're not anywhere near answering my question yet. You you said when called with no arguments, and then you say, and I said, okay, so you would use the default, and you said, or the argument they passed you, but you just finished saying they gave you no argument. So how can you use an argument that you just said they didn't give you? That's what I'm I'm talking about. Arguments to the accessor function, not arguments to the constructor. We're finished with the constructor. I'm not saying about the constructor. I'm reading section four, which is the section on accessor methods. You say, when called with no arguments, the accessor method should get the current value. And I asked you, what is the current value? Is it the default? And you said, no, it can also be the argument they gave you. But you just finished saying when called with Ah. no arguments. Okay, sorry. Sorry, my bad. Okay. These accessor methods don't know what happened with the constructor. So you, if you called the constructor with no arguments, then the accessor method will get you the default. But if you called the constructor with an argument, then the accessor method will get you that value. If you call the accessor method with no arguments. So Okay, so when, object- when you say w- if the accessor method is called with no arguments, that doesn't mean that the constructor didn't have arguments. Exactly. So the constructor could have had arguments. Okay. Yes. Okay, in which case, the values in the object are what you passed. So the accessor method will get you whatever is in there, right? Okay. So the constructor is putting these values into the data, and the accessor is reading what's in the data. And what's in the data might be the default, or it might not be, but whatever it is, read it out. Okay. Or, if there's an argument, reverse the logic. Don't read it out, shove it in. Okay. Yep. And again, it's the I'm input from the user. Therefore, check it and throw an exception if the user's telling porky pies. Okay. That's that sort of a mantra. If the data comes from the user, don't trust it. It's not that <laughs> really. 
Okay. So that's step four. So write your constructor, write your accessor methods, then write the functions. So I said I would tell you two things, what data and what functions. So we've dealt with all that. So we've dealt with the data part so far. So now write me the functions. And I will have told you what they are. They will be different every time. And then step six, it's really good practice to always write a function named toString. And it should always give back a sane representation of the information in a string form. So if your prototype is storing the details of an automotive vehicle, it might return four-wheeled car or eight-wheeler truck or something. But basically, it should be a string that in some way is sane for describing the actual data in your object. And that could, I mean, that's going to be different for every thing, right? Where did we do that in our clock? I did it in my clock. I did it in my clock. Okay, but it wasn't in your clock last week. It wasn't in my clock last week. That is correct. Okay, so I, I'll I'll wait and see what that means because that doesn't make any sense to me at all yet. But let's. Well, let's... I, th- I think it will. Yeah, when we see. I think it will. Okay. So this is our sixth step, and so basically, I suggest you always do things in this order. Okay. And then writing a prototype becomes a mechanical process. Chunk, 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 chunk. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a real example. I would like us to write together pbs.name, which will represent a person's name. Step one, gather requirements. I am telling you that for our purposes, name objects will contain two pieces of data, a first name and a last name. And they will provide two functions on top of the accessor methods and the two string. They will provide dot full name and dot initials. And they will both return strings, either the full name or the initials. Okay. So step two, set up your namespace, etc. I've seen so this one before. Want, yeah. So this is what it looks like to you normally, right? Var PBS equals PBS, question mark PBS, colon, squirty brackets, function PBS, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You're used to that. Now, very annoyingly, because the playground is sort of a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole, that won't work in the playground. Oh. So in the playground, you comment out line two. Write it and then comment it out. Okay. But just and then it do it fine. so that it's a practice. Got you. Okay. Do it that it's but know that you're commenting it out. And the only reason you're commenting it out is because the playground is a bit of a, it's an odd thing to have a web page inside a web page. It, it, okay. Weird stuff. Step three, create the constructor. Remember that your constructor is a function with the same name as your prototype. So in our case, that's pbs.name. Also remember that you can avoid sloppy code duplication by making use of the accessor functions you know you will write later. You know you're going to write these accessor functions, so you can use them. I know this okay. will make your head hurt, but this is... No, I've seen that before, and, and I'm at peace with it. It was upsetting, oh, but I'm at peace with it. <laughs> okay, so pbs.name equals function, and I'm saying I'm going to name my two arguments, fn and ln, for first name and last name. Okay. So the first thing I do is initialize my data with default values. This dot underscore first name equals John. This dot underscore last name equals Doe because I couldn't think of any other sane default. You can make okay. it Jane if you like. Okay. Then we say if there were arguments, use the accessor functions to set the value. So if type of fn not equal to undefined, then there was a first name. This dot first name fn. So we are first name. We haven't written first name yet, but we're going to. It's our accessor method. And we do exactly the same thing for last name. Okay. So you can see the pattern there, right? We have two pieces of data. We make variables for them with an underscore in front of their name. 
and we shove in a silly default. And then if we got arguments, we call the accessor methods, which have the same name, but without the silly underscore. And the reason for that is because you can't have one name mean two things. So the underscore is the data, without the underscore is the function. Okay. Okay. Then we create those functions. So we've just used dot first name and dot last name, and they don't exist yet. Right. So let's create them. Okay. PBS.name.prototype.firstName equals function. Okay, so if first name is a prototype or name is a prototype? PBS.name is a prototype and we are adding a function to it. And the way you do that okay. is by messing with the prototype property of the prototype. It's not pleasant. JavaScript is not a language that wins any prizes for clear syntax in this regard. Okay. Uh, Let me see I'm if I can say it, because this is something where you, you say those sentences and then mm -hmm. I try to speak to you and you say I'm saying it wrong, but I never got a chance to ever say it. So let me see if I can say what you just okay. said without and sound idiotic. Uh, so okay. pbs.name is a prototype and we're building a mm -hmm. function inside that prototype called first name. Yes, we are. <sighs> that is it. Exactly. Perfect. I'll never be able to do it again, but I did it once. There okay. we go. We're saying that that function Within that function, we'll call the first argument fn. For first Wait, name. we'll call... We, right. We're going to be past fn. Right. But yeah, whatever they pass us, we shall, we shall refer to it as fn. Why? We, what do you mean? We should, it is fn. Well, within Why the do code we, in here... We could call it something else? We could call it boogers. Why? And the code would read a bit funny. I don't understand. It's already called fn. It's called fn because we said so on line one there. Right. So we why do we? But line line one of the of the prototype, we say no. we're going to call it FN. No, no. So on line one of the prototype, we say we shall call it FN within this function. So that FN. Oh, but that doesn't exist. Line fourteen, and then we're now making another FN which exists from line one there to line twenty seven, and then it goes. Sorry, to line seventeen, and then it goes away. Then on line eighteen, we make an LN that exists until line twenty seven, and then it goes away. The, 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 the names we give the arguments to functions only exist within that function. Right. And the accessor methods are not inside the prototype. Therefore, they don't know, they don't know for FN. So well, we're, the we're FN just making, we're doing it again. Right. The FN for the constructor exists for the constructor and only for the constructor. Right, the this that right. underscore first name exists forever. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. How, does, how does this that underscore, oh, wait. Where did so this underscore first name comes into being by us giving it a value. So okay, we but have... that only exists inside the constructor. No, this is the magic word. So the oh, that makes it exist outside. Object. Okay, yes. got you. Okay, all right, I caught up. Yeah. So the constructor constructs, and one of the things it shoves in is underscore first name and underscore last name, which it uses as John Doe as the defaults. Okay. So the accessor method's job is to reach in and either get or set what's inside the object. So. If arguments at length triple equals zero, which is there or none, there are no mm -hmm. arguments, return this dot underscore first name. So it's so going to come back John. Exactly. Okay. Otherwise, they gave us information, so they're users, therefore we must make sure that they're being <laughs> sane to us. So my test for sanity in the case of a first name is I would like it to be a string that is longer than empty. So type <laughs> of fn triple equals string and fn dot length is greater than zero. So that's my definition of sanity here. Okay. 
I found that length is greater than zero. The, the reason I was pausing for just a second is, is I had a spreadsheet once that I couldn't show to anybody because it had data about employees. And I was doing an average of a column and the column would have like a four and a two. And so the average should be three and it was coming out some other number. And I asked this woman who worked for me, I said, I can't show it to you, but how could that possibly be? And she said, that means somebody put in a space because the space has a hexadecimal value of like eight or something it has some value and that wrecked it. And so I had to count. It was a big mess, but that's why I was, I was yeah. kind of pausing for a second because what would space do? Space would be length greater than zero. Yeah, space would be a valid name. It would be a dumb name. You're right. So you could actually get more specific here and say, and the space is not <laughs> equal to the the string space. Or a you bunch could, of you space, could get yeah. carried away or you could yeah. use a regular. But I could put a space thing. in your function here and really make it look like it was broken when indeed it was not. Correct. Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. All right. Yeah, this is like, like I say, these are naive. These are somewhat naive. Okay. They're, yeah, it's a good example, though. You're right. Okay. Not particularly good. All right. It shows that I understand what you're doing, though. Okay, good. Correct. And we're saying that if this is if it's not a string of length at least one, throw a new error. A first name must be none. Must oh, well, my grammar is terrible. We we'll leave that aside. A non-empty string. Okay. If we got by that line without the error being thrown, we set the value. So we say this dot underscore first name equals fn, and then for reasons that I hope will become apparent later, we always say return this at the end of an accessor. I'm sorry, hang on one second. Why would you not have a semicolon after you did the uh, if type of blah, blah, blah? Because we threw an error. Don't we want out at that point? Well, if we throw an error, we are out, right? So okay, we already line, got out before that. Okay, because well, line nine has a semicolon. An error, yeah, li the act of line nine, if line nine ever happens, nothing else in the rest of the function Okay, because it's got its semicolon. Okay, still not entirely tr figuring out where the semicolons go, but okay. Yes. All right. Okay. So and we set the value of this dot underscore first name uh, becomes fn. Mm -hmm. And now we return this. Yes. And we do that for a reason that will become obvious in a mo You okay. know the way in Java, in jQuery, you can say dollar whatever dot text something dot click something dot something else something. You can chain them together. Mm -hmm. That's because in, in jQuery, they always return this at the end of their accessors. Hmm. Okay. So we are doing the same politeness because it will allow our users to chain uh, accessors. Okay. Now, what I hope you notice is that the last name, pbs.name.prototype, the last name is immensely similar in its design to first name. <laughs> yes. So that gives you an idea that these accessors have a structure to them. Check how many arguments I got. If I, only, if I got no arguments, just return. Otherwise, make sure the user is not being insane. If the user is not being insane, set the value, return this. So that's the pattern. Okay. Step five, create the needed functions. I asked you for two dot full name and dot initials. These are very simple functions because this is a very simple prototype. So pbs.name.prototype.fullname equals function. Return this dot underscore first name concatenated with a space concatenated with this dot underscore last name. Okay. And the initial is mildly more complicated. Return this dot underscore first name dot carat zero. In other words, the first letter. Because so is carat a that's a JavaScript function? All right. That is a JavaScript function that belongs to the string prototype. So every okay. string can be caratted and it will be the character at position whatever. Okay. And the positions are like arrays. So okay. they start so zero is the first, one is the second. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. And then another, another string function is dot to uppercase. So we say, give me the first letter and then uppercase it. And then we concatenate that with a period. And then we do exactly the same thing for the last name. We take the first letter of the last name, we uppercase it, and then we concatenate another period on the end. So we get initial period, initial period. Okay. Seems like the same thing to do. Yeah. Step six, provide a two-string function. Now, this is... I initially chose this one because in this case, the two-string is almost certainly exactly the same as a full name, right? Isn't that a sensible way to turn a name into a string is to just give the name? Yeah. So we can actually say pbs.name.prototype.toString equals pbs.name.prototype.fullName. Where did we get full name? We defined it. We did? Just above by saying pbs.prototype.fullName. Oh, there it is. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I I was looking at the initials line. Okay. Yeah. So so why are we doing this two-string at the end again? Because it is, you want it to be true that every object on the planet you can call two-string on. And in fact, Why? you can. Why? Well, because if you need to print out a message saying, uh, I don't know what, it, uh, there is something wrong with this object, and then print it out in an error message, unless it can go to a string, your you error message is going to be garbage. Yeah. Now, huh. okay. JavaScript ensures that every object has a function called toString. If you didn't write it, you got the default one. And the default one prints the string, open square bracket, object, comma, object, close square bracket as a string, which is an awfully ugly string. So by writing your own, you are replacing the default with something sane and sensible. And it doesn't have to be a whole different function. It can just be use that function over there. Okay. So what we're saying here is our two string function is full name. Okay. But if, but if my, if my, um, function was returning, um, the addition of two numbers, then the addition of the two numbers was seven. Mm -hmm. What, what would you put here? I would so I would say pbs that name the prototype dot string equals function and then write an actual function which is just going to say the string the empty string concatenated with the number as the return value because that will force it to be a string right if you take an empty string and you concatenate a number you get back the string version of the number oh, okay okay so it would say s e v e n or uh, no, it, the, would it would be the, the number string, seven character as a seven string. as a string okay all right okay gotcha. So you can write a full function here if you need a full function, but my experience is that I almost there's almost always another function that actually is your two-string function. It just doesn't have that name. It has a sane and sensible name for something else. Okay. And so I just say, yeah, use that one over there. So let's see our new prototype in action. So when you've written the prototype, then you can actually do stuff with it. So var name one equals new pbs.name. So what happens when we do that? Uh, we've created an object of the prototype name. Yes, which will oh. contain uh, two pieces. Nothing. No, it's got, oh, it's got John Doe in it. It's got John Doe but in it. But we didn't so pass contain- anything, because we didn't pass anything to it. Exactly. Okay. So when we now do a pbs.say of name one dot two string, what would you expect to come out? John Doe. John Doe. Exactly. Right. Then we create another object called var name two. I'm very imaginative. Mm-hmm. Uh, equals new pbs.name Robert, comma, Zimmerman. Bonus points if you figure out what I've done here. Uh, this is a joke. Uh, okay. Anyway, let me say... It looks like it's got music in it, so no, I won't get it. <laughs> you know, you're the worst person on the planet to get this. Okay. So if we do a pbs.say of name2.fullName, you would expect to print out... Robert Zimmerman. 
And if we do a PBS that say name two dot initials, you would expect to print out R dot Z dot with capital letters. Correct. Okay, let's use these accessor methods. Name two dot first name Bob. So we just assigned Bob. Yeah. Okay. So now first name Bob. Right. Now if we do a PBS that say of name two dot full name, we get Bob Zimmerman. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then we say name two dot last name dot Dylan or sorry, not last name we pass the string Dylan. Uh-huh. Now if we do a name two dot a PBS that say name two dot full name, we get Bob Dylan. Right. Because Robert Zimmerman is Bob Dylan. Ah. Okay. <laughs> or Bob Dylan is Rob Zimmerman. I'm not sure how you want to put that around, but anyway, the the birth name of the artist known as Bob Dylan is Robert Zimmerman. All I know is he was too cool to go pick up his uh his uh, Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize. <laughs> $850,000 if he just does a lecture and the, the jury's still out on whether he's going to do that. I think he will. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't need $850,000. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he doesn't, but I still think he will. Okay. So to make that easier to copy and paste into the playground for you to play with, I have put exactly the same code we've done in little pieces all together in one big copy-pastable chunk. Okay. When, one thing so that, here, when you said you said we needed to uh, comment out the one line, the var PBS yeah. equals PBS question mark, that we need to use PBS. We can't use Podfeed here as our namespace because we're inside the playground. If you Podfeed as your namespace, then you wouldn't comment out that line. But it wouldn't work in the PBS playground. It would work in the playground. The problem is the playground uses PBS itself. Oh, OK. So we could have done the whole thing Podfeed. OK. Yeah. PBS.say right. is the reason we need to be careful. Okay. Otherwise, we end up breaking PBS.say. Okay. Which I did. Uh, and then <laughs> That's how you figured it out. Okay. So I figured it out. So it's if you amazing were using that a different... it took 61 lines to do this. Yes. Seems like a big number. Truth. Yeah, but in the real world, you're going to write a prototype for something that happens a lot. So yeah, it's 60-something lines to create all clocks ever. But it's all clocks ever. <laughs> but it's all clocks ever. Right? Okay. Okay, so... That's a fully worked example. And on the same vein, I'm going to give you three challenges. Okay. Challenge one, a simple time prototype. Create a prototype named pbs.time to represent arbitrary times. Each time object will contain three pieces of data. The number of hours in 24-hour format. The number of minutes. No, no. It will contain that. It doesn't mean you have to read it out that yeah, way. All right, good. Right? Yeah. It will store it that way because then we don't have to store AM or PM as a separate piece of data. So we store it in 24, the number of hours, the number of minutes, and the number of seconds. Okay. The prototype should implement the following functions. Dot time 12, which will return the time as a string in 12-hour format, and dot time 24, which will return it in 24-hour format. Okay. Now, obviously, there's a lot of data validation to be done here, because if you ask for something with 85 seconds, you you need to say that's garbage, right? You better or convert it, it to a minute and 25 seconds. If you want, that is, yes, if you <laughs> want to have them roll over, that is entirely doable. That would be a very fancy pants prototype. I'm not okay. expecting but you to But it's also not a time. That's not a yeah. time of day. <laughs> no, so then you have to roll over again. time. Well, if you're going to do rollovers, you have to roll all the way, right? So if you're going to roll the seconds over, then you roll the minutes over. Right. You got to carry the one, as it were, all the I'm time. I'm not going right? to make it harder. I'll keep going. <laughs> oh, you if you right if this if you have all this in half an hour, you can do that if you like. Yeah, that's going to happen, now, Bart. <laughs> the way you will know that you have successfully created this 
prototype is the following code will work. So I give you the code to test your prototype. For okay. our lunchtime equals new pbs.time. Lunchtime.hours, 13. PBS.say, lunchtime.toString, which should say 1300. Okay. Var dinner time equals new PBS time, comma, time 17, comma 30. PBS.say, I have my lunch at time lunch plus... Okay, you get the idea. Yeah. That code uses the prototype. So if you wrote it properly, that code will work. So that's how you're going to be able to test your prototype. Okay. I do exactly the same thing for date. And I give you the same information at the bottom. Here's your code. And then I ask you to create something called a date time. And this contains a tiny little extra piece. Your pieces of data are themselves objects. A date time uh, contains... You just made it harder. Right. The third time, though. So you get to repeat twice, and then you get it very mildly harder. No, you only get to repeat once. That, that is correct, actually. Yes. Yes, it is. I don't get to repeat... Okay, so what is this now? A Each... date time is a date and time in one object, right? A date time is 4 o'clock next Tuesday. A date is next Tuesday... I'm being, okay. A date is the 1st of January 2016. A date time is 5 o'clock on the 1st of January 2016. Okay. You already know how to represent a time because you've written the prototype. And you already know how to represent a date because you've written the prototype. So a date time is an object with two pieces of information, a date and a time. So it's actually the same as what you've done before. But instead of storing a string, you're going to store a date and a time. Okay. You say so. I really thought we were going to get so. to do one thing three times, but we aren't. We are I'll doing try. one thing three No, no, you just made, okay. Trust me. Trust me. Yeah. And again, yeah, I've, I've trusted you before, Bart. Okay. And I end up crying again, at the end. Code here to test. Okay. Okay. So. Oh, do I have to put the date in that stupid order? You've got it? Looks like I'm going to prank well, you on actually, one four two I, I think... January 4th. I, well, I believe you'll find that the functions you have to write are dot .American and dot .European, which will give the date both ways. Okay. Challenge two, create a function. Each date object will contain a day, a month, and a year. The prototype shall implement the functions dot .American and dot .European. Now, the question is, what are you going to do for your two-string? I imagine your two-string is going to be dot .American, whereas my two-string would be dot .European. Okay. But I, I didn't tell you what to do for two-strings, so you're entirely... No, but you, you said I have to put in data... That's in the order that I don't know how I'm going to know that that's that looks like January 4th, 2017. So you've got data that's going to go into my function. No, I've said dot day one dot month four dot year 2017. There's no ambiguity there. That's I'm absolutely that's absolutely ambiguous. That's January 4th, 2017. You mean yeah, April 1st. One. No, but I'm saying day one month four year 2017. That's not ambiguous. Where does it say day one? On line on one. Sample. On line one. On line one, it says one four twenty seventeen. That's January fourth. Oh, sorry, you're looking at the very, very final example. Yeah, you're right. That is me being European centric. So I wouldn't, it, it, unless like, it had said "gonna prank Bart." That's the only way I knew you meant April. I would have never. That would have never occurred to me. Yeah, the documentation would have said what order those arguments were into the constructor. <laughs> the documentation I, I haven't written yet would have said. I know that's also <laughs> part of writing it, right? I'm not going to make you do that, though. I'm not going to force you to write js.code. That would only confuse things. Okay. All right. Well, we'll so see, if, Bart. If those prototypes work, then you know that prototypes are and the pattern. Yeah. I think this could really help. Good. Okay. So next time, we're going to do more inputs. And in parallel, I'm going to do more practice.
Oh, good, good, good. I like okay. it. Make it as dumb as you can think of. Make it dumb. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like we made it through. Um, for everybody else, it is already 2017, but I'm going to say uh, Happy New Year to you, Bart, because it will be 2017 the next time I talk to you. Yes, indeed. It will. Actually, for me, it will be 2017 in less than four hours. Ah, so. <laughs> I've got, uh, yeah. I got a little less than 11 to get there. Yeah, well, Happy New Year to yourself and Steve. I hope you have fun. Uh, I have no idea whether I may even be in the chat room this evening. I didn't make it on Christmas because. Oh, the chat room isn't tonight. The chat room's tomorrow. Oh, I know. And you said that in all, didn't you? (laughs) You Maybe I should go into the chat room tonight to make sure nobody shows up. (laughs) In that case, I have no excuse not to be there tomorrow. Which makes no sense to anybody else because they're all listening to this in in the middle of January. Let's just say. Hope you've had a nice new year. The very best wishes for 2017. And until next time, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon. So if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeed.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeed.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. 